Well, again, welcome on this snowy Sunday uh, to King's Cross. We are this morning jumping back into the book of Galatians. So if you have been with us for, for more than a few months, you know that in the fall we were slowly working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians. We took a break for Advent, Christmas time, the beginning of the new year. We're jumping back this morning where we left off in Galatians chapter 5. A bit of an overview uh, if, if maybe you've started coming in the last few months or if you just need a refresher. The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul, who was a man who was commissioned by God. That's what it means to be an apostle, to go and, and be a sort of specially designated messenger for the, the gospel, the good news, the message about Jesus Christ. In, in particular, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, which means non-Jewish people. So Jesus was Jewish. All of his 12 disciples were Jewish. The, the Christian movement sprung up in Jewish soil. But Paul was the apostle who was designated to go take it beyond those boundaries. And he goes and starts churches in all these different places. You can read about it in the book of Acts. And he planted one church in modern-day Turkey uh, in this region of what's called South Galatia. So this letter is written to the church that he planted there. And he, he started that church, and things were going well. And he left it to go and continue on his missionary journeys. And some people came in who he identifies in this letter as troublemakers. And they began to stir up the Galatian people by teaching them false doctrine by teaching against the, the sort of pure, simple gospel that, that Paul had preached. The, the message of Paul was that you are saved, you are justified, you are reconciled with God, you are accepted by God, not by virtue of your own good works and performance. You, you can't be a good enough person to earn God's love, but rather Jesus came and lived the life that you failed to live, went to the cross to pay the penalty that you owed for your disobedience, and by faith you can be accepted by God. He says that that's all you need. You don't need to supplement your faith with good works in order to be accepted by God. And some people came in and they began to say, listen, Paul's gospel, it's, it's just going to lead you to do whatever you want. Because if you're, not, if you're not saved by your good works, then you can live however you want, right? You can do whatever you want. So Paul's gospel, they said, is dangerous. And so they said, yes, faith in Jesus is great, but you actually need to supplement it with these other things. In particular, these were Jewish teachers. So they said, you need to supplement it with the Jewish law. And Paul gets word of this and he writes this letter and he's clarifying over and over again, no, that's not it. These are false teachers. I wish they would leave you alone. He says the gospel, the good news is again that justification is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's three key words that we've been looking at all through Galatians that I'm going to give us a refresher on. The first is the word law. Uh, what, is, what does law mean in Paul? Well, the, the word can be used in different ways throughout the Bible. It can refer just to the first five books of the Bible that together is called the law. It can refer to the Jewish law or the Mosaic law that is found within those five books, all of the, the sort of codes and instructions for God's people in the Old Testament. It can refer to the law within the law, which is the Ten Commandments, which you're familiar with. It can refer to the law within that law, which is the two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But even behind all of that, there's this sort of principle behind the, the, the created order of the universe that says that, that God is a moral and righteous and just and holy and perfect God. And so by virtue of him being that kind of God, the world that he created has these principles baked into it. And the law becomes sort of the standard against which our lives are measured in, in light of God's holiness and perfection and righteous, righteousness. That's the law. The second word, key word, is justification. 
It's a legal term that means you go into the courtroom and you're on trial and the judge declares with authority, you are in the right. You are innocent. You are not guilty. You are justified. Right? You're, the voice on high vindicates you and validates you and says you are good. You are justified. The third key word is the word faith. What does faith mean? It, it doesn't mean the simple sort of intellectual assent to the facts of Jesus's life and death and resurrection, but rather it's like it's, it's, it's putting your weight on something, right? This, this morning uh, and every day this week, I have not had a lot of faith in the concrete steps leading up to my front porch. So I have not walked on them without the help of the trusty handrail, which I do have faith in, right? So as I have to get down the steps, I'm grabbing a hold of this thing with my life because there's like three inches of solid ice on my steps. That's what faith looks like. It's, it's grabbing hold of something. The, the message of Galatians is that justification, the, the validation from the voice on high, cannot be achieved by obeying the law. No person can obey the law well enough. Rather, justification comes by faith, by grasping hold of Christ. And as we've seen this in the first four and a half chapters of Galatians, we've seen that there are what, what we've called the two gospel dynamics, the two sort of powerful gospel principles of Galatians. The first is that Christ died for me. The reason you can be justified by faith is because your law-breaking earned you death, but Jesus came and died for you. And so you have, there's no more penalty to be paid. Christ died for you. He died in your place. And not only does he take your death, but he gives you his life. The second gospel dynamic is Christ lives in me. Christ died for me. Christ lives in me. We saw this first in Galatians 2.20. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How does Christ live in you? He lives in you by the presence of the Holy Spirit who comes and lives in you. That's what we're going to see uh, chiefly in the rest of chapter 5 and really for the rest of Galatians as Paul kind of turns from Christ died for me to Christ lives in me. So Galatians 5, we're going to pick up in verse 16 this morning. And I'm going to read through verse 23. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. This is the word of the Lord. Christianity, for a long time, has had a false reputation of being anti-body or anti-material. Uh, the, the accusation, the charge is a charge of what is technically called dualism, which is like you look at the human being and there's soul and body and soul is good and body is bad. Or there's, there's the immaterial part of the world and there's the material part of the world, right? And so the, the immaterial is good, the material is bad. So salvation looks like the soul escaping the prison house of the body and going away and floating around in heaven forever and ever. Now, I'm sure some Christians 
think this. I'm sure some Christians live like this is true. This is not biblical. This is a, this is a false reputation. There was, in fact, a very dualistic philosophy in Paul's day. Uh, go read the writings of Plato, right? And you, you see this. And there's a, there's a very dualistic philosophy in our day that sort of separates the body from the soul and says your, your identity can be found in your soul, but your body doesn't necessarily have anything to do with that. Christianity teaches something very different than these various forms of dualism. You see Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 preaching a bodily resurrection. The the gospel that says that your body is going to be raised from the grave would have been very unattractive to Greek people 2,000 years ago. They thought the body was bad. So why would we want a resurrected body? And again, today we preach that the soul and the body are united together, that they're, they're both good and they both together form the human person. Now, why am I saying this? Because a simplistic reading of Galatians 5 might lead you to think otherwise. Paul is talking about the spirit and the flesh. And we hear that and we think, okay, he's saying the spirit's good, the flesh is bad. Spirit is like soul, flesh is like body. He's saying the body is bad and the soul is good and we need to escape the body. But that's not actually what Paul is saying. And the earliest Christian thinkers have pointed this out. Chrysostom, who's a fourth century uh, theologian, says of this passage, this is not a condemnation of the body. He says the body is an instrument. It can be used for good or for ill. St. Augustine, who is probably most unfairly accused as being anti-body, says of this passage, the fact is that both soul and body are good, and the whole person who consists of both is indeed good. So what Paul is saying here is not soul versus uh, body. What he's talking about is, is not two different parts of the human being, but two what we might call sort of operating principles or operating systems inside the heart of the human being. One he calls the flesh and one he calls the spirit. The word flesh here, there, there's, there's a Greek word for body. It's the word soma. That's not the word that Paul uses. So he's not talking about the body. What he is talking about is corrupt human nature. A story of humanity. We're created good with a good nature, right? Rightly oriented to God, rightly oriented to others, and, and rightly oriented towards self. But that good human nature turned in on itself when the first human beings rejected God and sinned. They began worshiping themselves rather than God, and they, they sort of turned human nature inside out. So that now, from the time that we come into the world, we have these corrupt desires where, where chiefly we worship not God, but we worship ourselves. And we're not interested in serving other people for their good. We're interested in using them for our own purposes and our own benefits. That's what Paul is referring to as the flesh. The spirit, on the other hand, is redeemed human nature. It's, it's human nature joined together with divine nature in the person of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of the Christian. It's the spirit of God operating in the heart of the, of the fallen yet redeemed human. Paul elsewhere calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of love. Romans 5, he says that, that God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So it's the spirit who helps us to love God and to love others. And notice these, these operating principles in the human heart work at the level of the desires. Verse 16 talks about carrying out the desire of the flesh. Verse 17, uh, the flesh desires. The, the, the flesh and the spirit are working on human affections and desires and loves. Why? Because once something has a hold on your affections, your actions will just inevitably follow. 
whatever has a hold on your affections. The battle between the spirit and the flesh is not a battle for your behavior. Christianity isn't about behavior modification. It's not, it's not even a battle for your mind, right? We sometimes treat Christianity as if it's like, if I can download the proper worldview into somebody's mind, then the problem will take care of itself. No, this is a battle for the heart. And this is exactly what Jesus meant when he said, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. There's tree metaphors everywhere in scripture. People are referred to or or compared to trees over and over and over again. And you get the picture, right? Like if, if, if you want a tree to be good, it's got to be good from the, from the tree itself, right? So the dead tree in my front yard that needs to be taken down, it, I couldn't make it alive again by going this afternoon and trying to glue some apples to it. Like that, that wouldn't make the tree alive again. The tree needs to be replaced so that then the fruit will be good. Or as Paul might say here, a heart is known by its works. So these two operating principles, these two natures in the human heart lead inevitably to two different ways of life. What are they? First, he calls the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh, Paul says, are obvious. What does he mean by that? Um, Does he mean that morality and immorality are uncontested and that any person with a brain can know what's right and what's wrong and there's really no debate over it? Uh, We sometimes think this way, don't we? We, here's, how, here's how you see it. You look at people who disagree with you on some moral issue and think that they're a moron or just the worst person in the world, right? What's beneath that is this idea that morality is uncontested. Everybody should agree about what this is. That, that, is, that is kind of thinking is sort of a holdover from a, a culturally Christian context where everybody has basically the same morality, but we don't live in that world today. And Paul did not live in that world. The, the first thing on Paul's list sexual immorality, the, the Christian sexual ethic was no less radical 2,000 years ago than it is today. It was maybe more radical. I'm, I won't get into details. You can, you can look into the Greco-Roman sexual ethic, but when Christians came in saying sex is for the context of marriage between one man and one woman for life, it was radical 2,000 years ago. Uh, and it is today. Uh, so when Paul says that, that the works of the flesh are obvious, he can't mean that everybody agrees on them. What he, what he means is that they're public, they're visible. They manifest themselves in, in a visible way. You say, what about the person who's a hypocrite, who, who sort of covers it up and hides it and lives a secret life for, for all their, their days? I would just say, eventually, the flesh will find you out. You, you can only cover up the works of the flesh for so long. Because it has an insatiable appetite, and eventually it's going to out you. What, he gives four categories here of the works of the flesh. What are they? The first one is sexual sin, sexual immorality, moral impurity, and promiscuity. And some of you may be thinking, here we go. Why do Christians care so much about who people sleep with? Like, what, what is the big deal? Why, do we, why does the Bible talk about this so much? I can't preach a whole sermon on this now. I did once. On November 6, 2022, I looked this up to see if anybody, if you're interested, uh, I preached a sermon called God's Design for Human Sexuality. It's on our website. It's on wherever you get your podcast. So if you, if you hear this and you want to go back and hear more, you can go back uh, and listen to that. But it boiled down to, there's two questions that go into sort of forming a sexual ethic. And the first is, who does my body belong to? And the second is, what is the point of my sexuality? Christianity has two radical answers to those questions. It says your body does not belong to you. It belongs to Jesus Christ. On the cross, he died to purchase you 
and to redeem you such that your body belongs to him and not yourself. And what's the point of your sexuality? It's not for your own pleasure. It's for God's glory. You use it to glorify Christ who owns your body. The flesh says my body belongs to me and the point of my sexuality is my own pleasure. But Christianity says something totally different. And here's the surprising thing, okay? This Christian view of sex, which sounds so uh, repressive to modern ears, absolutely revolutionized the dignity and the value and the treatment of women and of children for hundreds and hundreds of years. When, the, when Christianity caught fire in the early church, it, it radically changed the way that people treated women and children. Uh, there, there's probably been no invention in human history more than the Christian invention of monogamous marriage that has done more for women and children. So much so that there are modern non-Christian thinkers today who are picking up on this. There's an author named Louise Perry. She's British. She's not a Christian. Uh, for years, she was a sort of public feminist, and she worked in uh, a center that cared for women who had been abused. And she said at, at some point working in that context, she realized that the, the, the ideals, the sort of progressive sexual ethic that she had been in such favor of did more to land women in that center than it did to get them out of that center. And she wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution that I would commend to you. And at the end of it, she says, basically, what we need to elevate the well-being of women in, our, in the West today is a mechanism that encourages sexual restraint on the part of men, commitment prior to sex, and devotion and care for children. And she says, it turns out we already have that mechanism, and it's called monogamous marriage. The flesh, of course, doesn't care about this doesn't care about glorifying God, doesn't care about serving others. It cares about its own appetite. The second category here, you could call maybe spiritual sins. Again, proof that this is not anti-body. These aren't even bodily sins. The first one, idolatry. Okay, so worship of false gods or false worship of the true God. The second word that he uses is sorcery. That's interesting. Uh, this is probably the reason why some of your parents wouldn't let you read Harry Potter when you were kids. I'm not so concerned about that. I'm a fan of Harry Potter. The, the word, the Greek word here is the word pharmakeia. You can hear the, the root of that, right? It's the word from which we get pharmacy. Okay, what this word is, is it, this is probably about the use of mind-altering substances to produce some sort of spiritual experience. You think, okay, where, where do I see that today? Um, I, I learned in the last couple of weeks that the, the use of psychedelics among young adults in, in the United States has doubled in the last 10 years. And one main reason that people give for, for experimenting is the spiritual experience that comes on the other side of that. And Paul says using these sorts of, of things to try, to try to sort of create or, or manufacture a spiritual experience is akin to something like sorcery. It's a work of the flesh. A third category, um, I, you might call these sins of the heart. I don't know. Just look back at this list, okay, and think, does anybody else struggle with these? Hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissension, faction, envy. Anybody, any of those hit home for anybody? <laughs> these are like the reactive sins, right? The it's taking so long to get into the car to hit the road right now. I, my head is about to pop off, right? This is the, you're driving and the person cuts you off and what just comes out of your mouth or, or into your mind or out of your hand gestures or whatever it might be. This is like, it's telling on you, right? That the flesh is still operating 
and active in you. Fourth, he says drunkenness, carousing. Okay, again, what's the big deal? Um, first of all, this is, not, this is not a condemnation of drinking beverage alcohol. The Bible, uh, in many places, just assumes that people will drink beverage alcohol, and in some cases even seems to endorse it. So that's not what's going on here. What, what's being condemned is getting drunk. Um, what's the big deal? Well, again, who does your body belong to? Who does your mind belong to? What's the, what's the point of your mind? If it's to glorify God and if you belong to God, then why, why give yourself over to something that's going to take away the faculties of the gift that God has given you of a mind? Getting drunk or getting high is not honoring to God. It doesn't serve your neighbors. It doesn't help you. It's not healthy. It's not good. It's not wise. And of course, there's a catch-all at the end of this and anything similar. So Paul gives this long list and he says, and anything else like this is also a work of the flesh. Uh, he shifts to the other list, right? So the, the, the flesh manifests itself in certain works. The spirit manifests itself in other works. And these he calls fruit of the spirit. So he, he uses the word fruit, right? It, it, it dignifies uh, these kinds of works. There's different attempts to classify or categorize these. I'm just going to walk through them. Uh, first is love, love of God, love of neighbor. Second is joy, right? The, this deep and abiding satisfaction and contentment in life. Third is peace, peace with God, peace with others, peace internally. We preached on that just a couple weeks ago. Patience, which means not being like me. Uh, kindness, this true and heart, you know, kindness is not like Southern hospitality. It is, it is genuinely like wanting the good of others and doing good for others. Goodness, think of uh, virtue, right? Being, being the kind of person who does the right kinds of things. Faithfulness, reliability, fidelity, trustworthiness, being a, a dependable person. Gentleness. Gentleness is, some of you think, well, I don't have a gentle personality. This isn't a personality trait. It's not, it's not weakness. It's not being timid. It's being humble. It's humbly uh, deferring to and, and prioritizing the desires of others rather than selfishly insisting on your own way. Ninth uh, and final fruit of the Spirit here is, is self-control. Um, we read... Uh, kids book or a series of kids book in our house called Frog and Toad. Anybody else read Frog and Toad or know those books? There's, they're full of uh, just wonderful illustrations. And they're one of my favorites, Toad bakes some cookies one day and he says, these cookies are the best smelling cookies ever. And he brings them over to Frog and Frog says, these are the best cookies I've ever tasted. And they just start eating the cookies, right? And they're just stuffing their faces and they keep saying, we need to stop eating these cookies. You're right. We need to stop eating these cookies. Okay. Maybe just one more. Okay. Maybe just one more. And finally, Frog says, what we need is willpower or self-control. And, and Toad says, what's that? And Frog says, it's wanting really badly to do something and not doing it. And so that he says, let's take the cookies and he puts them in a box and he closes the box and he ties it up with some ribbon. And Toad says, well, we can untie the ribbon and open the box and keep eating the cookies. And Frog says, you're right. So he puts them up on a high shelf and he puts them back in the box, ties it up, puts it back on a high shelf. And Toad says, well, we can climb up on the high shelf and get the cookies and, you know, untie them and, and eat them. And Frog says, you're right. So he takes the box, he opens it, he goes outside and he says, he says, hey, birds. And the birds come and eat all the cookies and Toad starts crying and he says, now we don't have any cookies left. And Frog says, yes, but we have lots of willpower. <laughs> and, and Toad says, well, you can keep it all. I'm going to go home and bake a cake. But that's not willpower. That's not, that's not self-control, right? That's, that's not being able to control yourself. So you have to just get the thing out of the picture so you don't have to worry about it anymore. Self-control 
is when you see the flesh rearing its ugly head and you're able to spot it and you're able to rule over it, right? God, very early in the Bible in in Genesis uh, 4, Cain and Abel, right? Cain gets very jealous of his brother and God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, but you must rule over it. You must master it. That's what self-control is. It's worth just saying uh, quickly, these are not personality traits. If you, I'm just going to tell you, go find Tim Keller's sermon on this. And it's a really, really helpful sermon. It's all about this one little throwaway comment that I'm going to make. But we look at the fruit of the spirit and we think, well, I have this one, but I don't have that one, right? I have gentleness, but maybe I don't have goodness because, you know, I'm, I'm really gentle with other people, but it's sometimes hard for me to do the good, challenging thing. He says, no, you don't. You just have a personality. And and the, the flip side to your gentleness is you're scared. You're timid. That's not a fruit of the spirit. That's just a personality trait. These aren't personality traits. It is the actual fruit of the Holy Spirit who's in your heart, working through your heart. Two operating principles, both working at the level of our desires, both producing different works or fruit. And in the Christian, both present, constantly fighting, engaged in a truceless war with one another so that, Paul says, you don't do what you want. I'm going I'm to come back to that, but first I want to address anyone in the room who might not yet be a Christian. Um, th- this battle between the flesh and the spirit is a uniquely Christian battle. If you're not yet a Christian, it's just flesh. There's, there's no internal war. You say, well, I still have an internal struggle. Well, even, even your better angels, if you're not yet a Christian, are still appealing somewhere deep below the surface to your selfish, self-centered desires. I don't say that to say that people who aren't Christians can never do good things. People who aren't Christians do good things all the time. There's, they contribute wonderful things to the world. But the operating principle underneath the surface, if you dig deep enough, is still this self-interested motivation of the flesh. Augustine, teaching on this, said that there's, there's three different sort of uh, stages of human nature. The first he called the natural life. The natural life, he says, there's no concept of God's law. There's no guilt. There's no shame. It's just guilt-free flesh. You just, you just give in without thinking twice to every single desire and impulse of your heart. But the second he calls is under law. This is when conviction starts to come in, right? You start to feel guilty for some of the things that you're doing. You start to feel shame about some of the things that you're doing. You start to realize my life would probably be better if I didn't live that way anymore. And so what do you do? You try to overcome the flesh, but you can't. You don't have the power to. Why? Because Augustine says, he says, you you try to abstain from sin, but you are overcome. Why? Because you do not yet love righteousness for God's sake. He says you, you want to observe righteousness in the hope that your earthly life will get better. Do you see what he means? You start to get this conviction that I should live a different way because my life would probably go better if I lived differently. But the problem is you don't love righteousness for God's sake. And I have to say that I think... I'm a, bit, I'm a bit worried about some popular teachers sort of emphasizing the natural fruit of living a moral life. So there's a lot of folks now, it's almost, there's almost like a new movement that, that is not technically Christian, but wants to like pull the wisdom of the Bible and say, if you use the wisdom of the Bible, your life will be better. You will, you will kind of have a reward. Nobody 
was more righteous than Jesus and it landed him on a cross. And so I don't want to deny that there can be benefits to sort of living with the grain of the universe as it were, right? But, but in the end, it's not about gaining something in this life because Augustine goes on, he says, when this, when this is the case, you see righteousness on the one hand and you see an earthly benefit on the other, what happens? You're dragged down by the weight of your desire and you forsake righteousness. Again, trying to, Trying to pursue righteousness without the spirit actually in your heart is, is, as Luther said, trying to pick trees from apples instead of apples from trees. It doesn't work that way. The third stage, Augustine calls under grace. He says, to this person, no earthly good is preferred to righteousness. This cannot happen except by spiritual love, which the Lord has taught by his example and given to us by grace. If you're not a Christian and you're still in the flesh, do you, do you want, like, do you see the beauty of the life of the Spirit? <laughs> is it compelling to you? Do you want that? Do you want, as, as Jack read to us earlier, to be brought back to the life that really is life, the source of goodness and happiness and joy that is in God alone, that is in Christ alone? If so, don't try to get there by just trying to be a better person. It won't work and it will crush you. Go back to the gospel in Galatians, which is that your disobedience to God earned you a curse, but Jesus went to the cross to take it for you, to give you his blessing. And if you just grab hold of him by faith, that will be yours. Now, Christian, uh, again, this battle between the flesh and the spirit is unique to Christians, but it's not unique to you. All Christians have to fight this battle. And so if you're feeling particularly dejected or discouraged this morning, welcome to the club. <laughs> like we all, we all fight this battle. We all fight it to the death. There's still two natures in you that are fighting. What do we do with this? Um, I think there's, there's, there's two applications of this for the Christian. The first is that some of you in this room might need to be warned by this passage. <sighs> some of you, your life might look a lot more like the works of the flesh than the fruit of the Spirit. And that's not the Christian life. Uh, Luther, in his commentary on this passage, says, although the flesh still has life in the Christian, it does not satisfy what it would like to do, since it has been tied hand and foot and has been firmly nailed to the cross. The faithful, he says, feel the desires of the flesh, but do not satisfy them. And some of you maybe are in a season where you're satisfying the desires of the flesh. You're not fighting. The flesh is having its way with you. You're yelling at your wife or your husband. You're, you're looking at porn. You're gossiping. You're over drinking. And you're, you're not doing anything about it. And, and God's word, Paul's word, not me, God's word is warning you this morning. I think there's two different reasons why that could be the case for somebody. First, you might be living this way and you just don't care. Uh, you just, you, you, you're like, hey, I'm, I'm justified by faith. I'm saved by grace. God's not going to, I'm good, right? Uh, you're, you're abusing justification by faith. But others of you, and I think this is probably more common, others of you actually haven't taken hold of justification by faith. Uh, this is the person who, okay, you can't dare to admit that you were wrong about something. You, apologizing to somebody is like pulling teeth, unless, of course, you feel like it's the more morally superior thing to do to apologize, in which case you rush to apologize first. Um, why is this? It's because 
underneath the surface, you're still trying to justify yourself. The, the reason that some of you can't come to terms with the fact that your life looks more like the flesh than the spirit is because you think if you admitted that, it would be admitting that you're not a Christian. And you would think, I'm, I'm not living up to God's standard, and so God must not be happy for me or happy with me. He must be mad at me. And so I can't dare to come to terms with the fact that I'm messing up somewhere because I'll think I'm going to lose my salvation. Luther, so Martin Luther was a, a Protestant reformer. He was a Catholic monk before the Reformation. And he said, he's talking about this passage, and he says, when I was a monk, I felt that if, if at any time I felt the desire of the flesh in my life, I would immediately think that I was going to be stripped of my salvation. And it drove him crazy, right? Some of you underneath the surface, that's what's going on. You, you think if I'm, if I'm screwing up in some way, if I'm, if I'm failing morally or ethically or whatever, then it must mean I'm not really a good Christian. And so I just can't admit that I'm messing up because what would that mean? Whether you're in the don't care category or unself-aware category, I, I just want to encourage you to take this warning from God's word seriously. Paul is saying if you practice these things, which means if your life is characterized by these things, by the works of the flesh, it is proof, if you persist, it is proof that you were never a Christian to begin with. But this warning is, is God's grace to wake you up and help you realize the way that you're living and come back to Christ. Now, my guess would be perhaps most of you don't need warning, but most of you need encouragement. Okay, go back to that Luther quote. He says, when I was a monk, I was always thinking I was going to be stripped of my salvation. He, that's how he felt underneath the surface, but it didn't keep him from being self-aware about his sin. He was very self-aware about his sin, and it drove him to this point of constant dejection and depression because he was so aware that I am not good enough to meet the standard of God's righteousness. And some of you are in the same boat, right? You are all too aware of your sin and you're thinking, why am I still fighting this? After five years or 10 years or 20 years as a Christian, why am I struggling with this same sin? Why can't I beat this thing? And, and you're beating yourself up all the time and you're feeling discouraged and you're feeling disappointed with yourself, surprised at your own sin. And I would just say, Christian, if, if you're surprised at the fact that you're still struggling with sin, you haven't really understood the gospel yet. You're going to struggle with sin. You're going to struggle with the flesh to the death. And the very, the, we look at struggle and think, uh-oh, this must mean that things are going poorly. The fact that you are struggling with the flesh is the evidence that you are a Christian. It is the evidence that you have the Spirit in your life. Don't be discouraged if you're struggling. Be encouraged that the Spirit is fighting the flesh in your life. We wrestle with the flesh to the death. We do so in the power of the Spirit, not on our own. We do so in the company of the saints. If you're here this morning and you are maybe on the margins of the church, or maybe you're right in the thick of the church, but you haven't like opened yourself up to anybody, can I just invite you to take hold of one of the greatest gifts that God gives us in our sanctification, in our battle against the flesh, which is his people. This is a place, I hope and I pray and I think, where you can get alone with somebody and confess what you're struggling with, and they will not shame you, and they will not make you feel worse than you already feel. 
we are here for you to be able to share what's going on in your life and find hope and find rest and find grace and find somebody who's going to help you, who's not just going to say, okay, good luck with that, but who's going to walk with you. So we, we wrestle in the community, in the company of the saints. We wrestle in the hope that one day our wrestling will be done, right? One day when, when God's glory does cover the earth like the snow covered Nashville this week, we will be done wrestling because the flesh will be no more. And we wrestle all the while in the confidence that it is not our wrestling with sin that saves us. It's not our wrestling with the flesh that saves us. It's Christ dying for our sin that saved us once and for all. And when he comes again and we're fully renewed, the flesh is no more, our struggle will be over and we will live forever in glory. So if you need encouragement this morning, please take courage, hold on to Christ, hold on to the gospel and keep fighting.